This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Listen for more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. With original sin, we don't only get original pollution or defilement, but we also get original guilt. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined here as always by my good friend and colleague and co-host, Dr. James Dalzell. James, how are you today? I'm well, Jonathan. It's good to be here. It's great to be with you. I, you know, we've been talking off the air about topics that we wanted to discuss. And some of this is driven by questions that we've been asked and discussions that we've had with others. And so today we wanted to take a couple of minutes to talk about the doctrine of original sin, what we mean when we use that terminology, what distinctions we need to make between original sin and the sin we commit, uh, what that means in terms of our responsibility. So I want to start, James, by um, just giving a, a, a brief definition of original sin that is from Charles Hodges' systematic theology, but he's trying to follow the language of the confession. And he says, the effects of Adam's sin upon his posterity are declared to be, and then he goes on to list three things under original sin, the guilt of Adam's first sin, the loss of original righteousness, the corruption of our whole nature. Those three items, guilt, loss of original righteousness, corruption of our whole nature. And he continues on to, to talk about that. So uh, I'll lead with that definition and then kick it to you for, for thoughts or questions that emerge from that. I think the first thing that we have to do is distinguish uh, the confusion between what is sometimes called the origin of sin and original sin. They just sound so similar. When we talk about the origin of sin or beginnings of sin, we're talking about maybe primarily the, uh, the fall of holy angels into sin. But then among men, we're talking about the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, the beginnings of sin. But when we talk about the doctrine of original sin, that is not what theologians are referring to. It's connected, but we're not referring to the origin of sin we're talking to the original sin that is original with each of us, I think what Hodge calls Adam's posterity, um, in our very conception. So this, this is an original, not so much the original in the garden as original with every man and woman at the point of conception, accepting only Christ. Right. Although it's, it's connected intimately, inexorably with Adam's sin in the garden. So we, 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 is the minute we start talking about our, the sin that is uh, within us from the point of conception, David says in Psalm 51, in sin, my mother conceived me, yet you desire truth in the innermost being. So there's this, this real problem because of our nature and, and that, that problem because of our nature, that original sin is connected with the, the sin in the garden. Right. And what it is, is it is the, it is the older language, the imputation of Adam's sin. And we should be careful to say um, not every single um, act of sin that Adam committed uh, is imputed to us, but namely that first one in which he fell uh, so that the guilt of that sin, as well as the pollution of that first sin is 
with us in our very origin and is original to each of us who are connected by a bond to Adam. So that Adam acts as a public person, not a private person. He doesn't impact us merely by a bad example. He impacts us by, in, in a very important sense, standing in our place and acting on our behalf and triggering certain consequences, moral and religious consequences for each of us who are represented by him. So that Adam's fall becomes by that federal public activity, my fall and the guilt and the pollution of it are imputed to me um, at my very conception. I want to get to the question of both guilt and pollution or guilt and corruption, because those are those are important concepts to distinguish. But but I want to back up a little bit and talk about the federal headship of Adam that you described, because I think for many today, at least when I've taught this in um, classroom settings where people are learning it for the first time, they react against that instinctively. Why am I responsible? Why am I affected by a sin that I had no stake in, I had no role in committing. I, I, you know, but people don't have as hard a time recognizing their culpability for sin they have committed. And you don't have to talk to someone very long before they will acknowledge that they've committed sin. But the culpability, the responsibility for Adam's sin seems to be a stretch. And the federal headship of Adam seems to be a great stretch you know not he's not my father you know he's not he's not my federal right. head yeah and i think in some senses that perhaps strikes against our proclivity for democracy i mean i think in one sense we can understand federalism and representative actions um in so much as in any kind of in any kind of federal arrangement uh one acts on behalf of many except that in non-monarchical non-oligarchical uh uh, political systems, we all should ideally, as free citizens and sovereign citizens, have a say in the selection of our representative. And yet Adam stands in our place as our federal representative so that as it goes with him, so it goes with us whom he represents. Uh, and yet we had no say in the selection of the representative. And I think the sort of the unstated assumption sometimes in that concern is if I had had a choice, of candidates, I may have chosen better than this one, um, or at least it would only have been fair if my personal choice were involved in establishing him as my head. Uh, but I think there's something sort of unwittingly sinister, perhaps, in that critique, which is to say, but someone did, someone did make a choice uh, for your representative. It wasn't your vote. Uh, it wasn't your decree that placed him there, uh, but someone did, and namely uh, God himself. Uh, and I think that's something we have to be careful of when we, when we complain about the fact that I didn't choose Adam. We need to be very careful uh, to remember that, yes, but, but God in his perfect and inscrutable wisdom did choose Adam. Um, and we, we don't want to say, we might say this after an election, you picked the wrong candidate. You chose badly, even if your candidate you know, won or, or you, know, so you might say, look, I think I'm going to argue you chose the wrong candidate. Do we really want to say that with regard to God who chose 
our representative. Yeah, it's a great point. Applied in all of that is our sovereignty over everything in our lives and really everything in creation. Um, and and it's it's interesting because even in situations where there is democratic choice, like you just mentioned elections, frequently people will say exactly what you said. He's not my president. He's not. It's not my congressman. You know, it's because uh, right. I didn't I didn't vote for him. Okay, so so. Adam, by virtue of God's decree, God's wisdom, is appointed as the federal head for the, the human race. And therefore, as the federal head of the human race, he, he sins, he falls, and that is, that is imputed to us. But now let's talk about the, the results of this, because you mentioned two. Hodge mentions three, and I think you would, you would agree with, with Hodge. But I think the two that we mentioned most are the guilt of sin and the corruption uh, in our nature, guilt and corruption. Hodge adds uh, the loss of original righteousness, because of course that was something that Adam did possess that he then lost. But for our, from our standpoint, the two things that we, as it were, get out of this arrangement are guilt and corruption or depravity or, or, you know, there are other words we could use, but, but those, those two are good ones, guilt and corruption. So distinguish between those two guilt and corruption. The first one has to do with our, with our status that we are under the condemnation of God. Um, And we get this in Romans chapter five, verse 18, where Paul is talking, where he, he frames it in verse 12 by saying, um, that sin entered uh, the world and death through sin through the one man. He's speaking there about Adam. Uh, and so the death spread to all men because all sinned. Um, and then the question is, does this mean that all sinned in imitation of Adam? Or does this mean that in a kind of federal corporate way, we all sinned in so much as Adam was acting in our behalf? And I think it's the latter. Um, and insofar as it conveys guilt, and I should say, I think this guilt, the guilt problem is actually the one that troubles people most of all. Even even adherents or professed adherents to original sin um, will acknowledge that some kind of perversion or pollution of our nature was transmitted from Adam um, so that sort of inevitably we ended up personally failing through actual sins of our own as well. And there will there are those that are willing to accept that, but don't like the idea that his actual guilt is imputed to us. Uh, that's the first one. And it's verse 18 of Romans 5 where Paul says, then, so then as through one transgression, he's speaking about Adam's fall, there resulted condemnation to all men. Uh, and then it goes on. And so through the one act of righteousness, um, justification of life to all men represented by Christ Jesus. And I think that's the, it's the result of condemnation. So that the condemnation there that results to all men is not the condemnation of each one's individual sins. It's the condemnation due to the one sin of Adam and and that condemnation passes to all men. And this is why we say with original sin, we don't only get original pollution or defilement, but we also get original guilt. Yeah, and 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 the word condemnation is a helpful word, not not only because it's the one commonly used in our translations of Romans five, but because sometimes the other the other hurdle we have to get over when we talk to people about guilt is we're not talking about subjective feelings of guilt. We're not talking about whether you're born right. feeling guilty. You may be or you you may not be, but but that's irrelevant, really. What we're talking about is the fact that you objectively are guilty. You are condemned. Yeah, you can imagine you can imagine a courtroom where the judge, you know, drops the gavel and says guilty, and the defendant says, 
yeah, but judge, I don't really feel I, guilty. I feel justified. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think I'm a good you know, person. It's yeah. It's not about the subjective feeling because we can cauterize our consciences and we can delude ourselves as to whether we're actually guilty and we can make ourselves believe all sorts of lies about our moral status. The question with regard to guilt, and you're right, in a kind of therapeutic me-centered age, we have transferred guilt from being that of objective judicial status to being personal feelings. And if I don't feel guilty, how can I really be guilty? So we're talking about an objective status as we stand before the bar of God's justice. Each of us stands not just defiled and polluted, but we should say first, um, already condemned uh, because we, and this is the thing with the condemnation, the condemnation um, and the guilt that we bear is actually is actually the just application and consequence of Adam's sin first to himself, he rendered himself guilty and to all on whose behalf he stood so that this guilt is in fact itself just a, just uh, a judicial sentence issued against each of us insofar as we are implicated with Adam in his federal representative activity. So we're condemned we're guilty. We're also polluted. And that gets then into, I think, two more important issues. One is the extent of the corruption. And historically, uh, uh, Protestants, Reformed Protestants have always said that the extent of that corruption is is total, which doesn't mean you're born as as bad as you could ever be or anything like that. But it means there's no part of you if, if you if you were divided into parts, there's no part of you that is untouched by the effects of sin. We're polluted all the way down. It may be an analogy would be something like putting a teaspoon of poison in a glass of water. There's, there's no part of that you'd want to drink at that point. It's all been corrupted. So, so that's one issue, the extent of the corruption, the totality of the depravity. I think R.C. Sproul used to distinguish between total depravity, depravity in all of our parts, and what he called um, utter depravity, um, that is to say um, that every part is as bad as it can possibly be. And we do make a distinction um, in terms of even the, even the weightier matters of the law and, and certain sins um, are distinguished within scripture um, in terms of their weight and the argument of total depravity. And this is, this is the, that pollution that we, are, that we are bent away from God and away from his law and every aspect of our being in our intellect, in our will, soul, and body there is um, there is a um, tendency and an inclination away from the glory and the good of God to the exaltation of the creature um, and to the glorification of of one's own self. There's a great you cited Hodge, so I'll I'll respond on this one with Burkhoff in his Manual of Christian Doctrine. He says of total depravity, this does not mean that every man is as bad as he can be, cannot do good in any sense of the word, and has absolutely no sense of admiration for the true, the good, and the beautiful, but simply that the inherent corruption extends to every part of man's nature and that there is in him no spiritual good, that is, good in relation to God at all, but only moral perversion. And I think that's the key, that there is a complete collapse of godwardness in all of our in all of our operations and inclinations and passions and appetites there's a tending away from god at every level of our being now this doesn't mean that that tendency um, is equally strong or severe in its manifestation of actual sin in every individual uh, person now 
that that has significant implications then for how we look at the kind of story we tell ourselves about people and their sins, even those who are then, uh, as all of us are, struggling in certain ways with sin. We can we can never say, well, I'm not culpable because this is just my bent. This is just kind of how I, you know, how I've always been wired. And and therefore and therefore I'm not responsible because I, I'm wired to to fly off the handle uh, at, at the smallest slight and lose my temper or I'm wired towards certain sexual sins. It, that's that's not an excuse because what we're talking here is about something something for which we are guilty. And I think it's the it's what I just kind of call the born that way argument. Um, and in fact, I, I I've called it that since walking through Costco several years ago when they still uh, sold CDs. And I don't remember the artist, but there was a CD um, and you could just tell by the cover art that it was sort of um, salacious and provocative um, and probably of a sexual nature. And the title of the album was Born That Way. Right. Uh, And I think and I think the appeal of the Born That Way argument is that if I'm born that way, then there can't be any moral guilt or culpability or subject to condemnation. Um, and so, you know, as you gave examples, I'm, I'm just a striker. I'm just, in, I'm an abuser. I'm a liar. I'm just, this is what I want. This is natural to me. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 3 says that we, um, first verse 1 says that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins, not born dead, but without sin, born dead and already loaded down and laden down with sinfulness. Um, and then uh, a little later, he says that we even were that we were by nature and nature is the word for birth. We talk about Christ's nativity. Um, Natura has to do with that, which is inborn. Literally when we say, he says that we were by nature children of wrath. And I think their wrath is the idea of divine condemnation and that we were born already under divine condemnation because of our inborn sinfulness or our, or our spiritual um, depravity. And I think that's the point. What we don't want to say is, well, I'm born that way. Therefore, I'm not culpable. I want to say um, first to that. Yes, you were born that way and you were born bad. If I can can just put it as simply as possible, you were born under condemnation. You were born under wrath. You were born bent. You were born depraved. Um, and And so what we want to say is that the salvation you need in Christ Jesus is not solely from your, what theologians call your actual sins. I think the larger catechism calls them actual transgressions, but you also need to be saved from your natural condition. The condition from which your actual transgression sprang um, is also a condition of moral culpability and condemnation so that we need salvation both from original sin and from our personal actual transgressions that flowed out of that original sin. Now, for all you train spotters out there, our producer just put up something in the chat letting us know that the CD that James was looking at at Costco was by Lady Gaga. I did not. And I did not. I don't own the CD. I've never listened well, to it, um, but it didn't take much imagination uh, to think what was going on. There. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> but no, your, 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 your serious point is, is, is significant, which is to, to say that does not absolve anyone from any, even if it could be demonstrated that, that you were born with a certain proclivity in whatever sinful way that in no way absolves you. In fact, it sort of proves the point. It just demonstrates that you're, you're right. acting out of your sinful nature. Now, let me end with this because I think this is it, it, when we talked about Romans five and Romans five is really 
probably the most significant text for what we've been describing here. Uh, But there are many biblical texts that are, that need to be brought to bear. But Romans five is a, is a critical one. And and the glory of that is that it, it, just as it talks about Adam's federal headship, uh, bringing us guilt and condemnation. So then it says those who are in Christ are not guilty. They're justified. They're, they're declared righteous and, and, and then we know that we're also being renewed inwardly by God's spirit. So the glory of regeneration, new birth, uh, sanctification, and, and also the glory of freedom from condemnation. There, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to say at the beginning of Romans 8. So that federal headship of Adam as, as widespread and far-reaching as it is, and as much as we still suffer the effects of it, uh, is undone ultimately in the work right. of Christ. There's a better federal head. He's not. That's right. He is not the only federal representative who has ever uh, been tested. Uh, Christ Himself, as second Adam, was tested, and unlike the first Adam, he accomplished all righteousness. Even says to John the Baptist when he goes down to be baptized, he says, "Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting to fulfill." all righteousness. And I like to take that as just a nice a nice framing of Jesus's entire work on our behalf. It is a fulfilling of all righteousness so that that, um, that deprivation of original righteousness that we all experience in our birth, dead in our trespasses and sins and without a fundamental Godwardness is in fact transformed and overridden by a better representative who imputes to us righteousness and imputes to us justification uh, as a result of that righteousness, as it goes with Adam, so it goes with those in Adam. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all who are in Him are made alive, um, and that's the good news in all of this. Original sin is devastating, and it leads to all the badness, moral badness that we see in the world. But there's a righteousness that is imputed that can absolutely demolish that guilt and pollution of original sin. And it's what we receive from that better Adam, Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, what a good note to end on. James, thanks for the conversation today. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. Just for listening, we'd like to offer you an opportunity to win a modern classic on this topic. It's entitled The Imputation of Adam's Sin by Professor John Murray. So if you'd like the opportunity to win this little book, that goes into great exegetical detail, particularly with respect to Romans 5, go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a place for you to enter your information for the opportunity to win. We, we really appreciate you as our listeners. We thank you for your questions and comments. We love hearing from you. And so if you do have things that you'd like for us to cover in the future, please let us know. And please pass this along to others whom you think might benefit from this podcast. Uh, If you are able to make a donation, you can do that at alliancenet.org. There's a donate button there or placefortruth.org. There's also a drop down donate button there. And thanks as always for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. 
When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine, clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations.